0: All right. Ready to go on? Ready. Okay. The recent West Virginia v. EPA Supreme Court ruling has left the environmental community fearing the worst, a conservative court hamstringing the EPA's ability to tackle climate change. In this episode, we speak with Professor Eric Freifogel, judicial scholar, author, and former Prairie Rivers Network board member. He discusses the ruling, the court's rationale for its decision and the broader implications for the environmental movement.
1: Professor Eric Freifogel, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks for asking me. Over the past few weeks, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down several momentous decisions on issues that are deeply contentious in American politics and culture. Among others, there were decisions on guns, abortion, and school prayer, in which the quote conservative majority flexed its muscle. They overturned Roe v. Wade, saying there is no constitutional right to abortion, effectively kicking the question of abortion's legality to Congress and to the states. The court held that a New York state law that required licenses for concealed carry was unconstitutional. These are big decisions on issues about which Americans are already deeply divided. And then there was the case that I asked you to come talk to us about, West Virginia versus EPA, which was about the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's ability to address climate change by regulating greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. Now, the particulars of the case are important and we'll get into those in just a second, but broadly speaking, the outcome of this case has dealt a blow to the federal government's immediate ability to tackle climate change, which has implications for, frankly, the whole world, with the United States being such a major contributor to greenhouse emissions. Now, for Prairie Rivers Network, as an environmental advocacy organization working on climate, And for all of our members, I think it's critical that we understand how the playing field may have changed and how we might want to adapt our strategies on climate going forward. But even beyond the specific outcome here in this case, the way the court reasons to the outcome is important. It tells us where the court is going and how other cases and controversies might play out. So even those cases that aren't on their face about environmental issues may have something to tell us about how the court sees its role what its judicial philosophy is, what it thinks about separation of powers between the branches of government, how it is interpreting the constitution or congressional legislation. Any or all of these cases may provide clues about which governmental actions the court is likely to see as legitimate and which it might invalidate. And all of this will profoundly impact how we as a country seek to address various problems through democratic governance, including climate change. So in addition to talking about the EPA climate case, I hope to get your opinion on where the court is headed more broadly, what it all means, and how we can respond to accomplish Prairie Rivers Network's mission to protect water, heal land, and inspire the change necessary to allow humans and wildlife to flourish against the backdrop of climate change. So with that introduction, let's begin with the greenhouse gas emissions case. Can you start by outlining West Virginia versus EPA? What was this case, broadly speaking, about?
2: So the case was basically about the power of the EPA as a regulatory agency to issue regulations severely restricting carbon emissions by existing coal-fired electric generating plants. The EPA had come up with a plan during the Obama administration, the Clean Power Plan, it was called. Um, And it was one that would have called for pretty sharp reductions in uh, not just carbon emissions, but frankly, the burning of coal by these coal-fired power plants. Um, The EPA set emission limits on uh, carbon dioxide so low that it was was going to force uh, these power plants, and by design, It was going to force them to shift away from coal and either burn natural gas or start generating electricity through renewable means, solar, wind, and maybe hydropower as well. So it really was a decision having to do with the power of the agency to issue regulations of this particular kind.
1: What did the court say about the EPA's power to regulate at that level, forcing coal-fired power plants to use to go to natural gas or renewables, or perhaps even just shut down entirely?
2: So a a question like this, when it arises, having to do with agency power, um, always leaves the court to look at the statute passed by Congress that vests power in the agency, the EPA in this case. So agencies such as the EPA only have the power granted to them by Congress. So really the question is, did Congress give the EPA this power? And as I say, To answer that, the place to look is at the governing statute. Uh, In this case, the EPA was specifically directed to issue regulations governing pollution sources like this. Uh, And the language of the statute uh, was one that told them that as it looked at the emissions from these sources, it should identify what the statute referred to as the best system of emission reduction Uh, for this type of pollution and this type of pollution source, the best system of emission reduction. And the EPA then came up with this regulation. Um, Normally, when the EPA comes up with pollution control regulations, it does so by identifying particular technology that a pollution source can use to cut back its emissions. Maybe it's some sort of scrubber technology that removes the pollutants. Maybe it changes in their sort of methods of operating, what their employees do. Maybe it's in the case of coal. It could be washing the coal in advance or something like this. So it's normally things that that a pollution source, a factory, a power plant, can undertake uh, and then continue on doing what it's doing. And what was novel about this case, uh, as I've suggested already, is that what the EPA picked as the best system of emission reduction uh, wasn't just a technological fix uh, for a coal burning power plant. It really, the emission levels were set low enough that the power plants would have to stop burning so much coal and either shift to natural gas or to renewables. Um, So it really looked not just at individual power plants as such, but it viewed them as a nationwide system of electric power generation. So looking at the system as a whole, the regulation was aimed at getting power companies generally across the country to shift to these other sources. It was a generation shifting, it was called. Uh, we're gonna start generating more electricity through, um, through uh, renewable means or through natural gas. And, and the novelty of this approach uh, is what caught the court's eye. Uh, and I think is one reason why the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case.
1: So this stems, this case stems from the 2015 Clean Power Plan, which was issued under the Obama administration. That's that's where this um, EPA regulatory plan has its origin. Um, can you say a little bit about the various parties? To the lawsuit. How did they line up? And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the history in a, in a little bit. But how how did the parties to the lawsuit line up? Who was supporting EPA? Who was opposing it? Was it as simply partisan and obviously partisan as the news stories may have made it out? To be? Uh,
2: no, it, it really was not a, a partisan split. And it's interesting that the, the um, entities being directly regulated by the plan, the power companies themselves, the coal-fired power plants, the owners of them. For the most part, they supported this plan. The opposition to it came instead from the coal industry and and coal mining states, because it really meant a decline in uh, the market for coal. I mean, it was the the coal producers who were gonna be hurt the most. uh, And so they were the ones who stepped up and changed. In fact, the power industry itself filed a brief supporting the EPA, as did lots of businesses, uh, as did lots of not-for-profit organizations across the board. Um, so it was, uh, it was an
1: odd alignment um,
2: that really didn't uh, have sort of a, a left-right political division to it.
1: Okay, so we know the result. The court rules that EPA does not have the power to issue this kind of regulation. How did it get to that decision? What was the court's rationale here?
2: So the the expectation going in to the dispute, I think, was that the case would be handled pretty much like other cases that involve statutory interpretation. The statute, as I say, says to the EPA, decide the best system of emission uh, reduction, uh, decide uh, then what emission levels would, would be produced using this best system of emission reduction. Uh, and then set those limits and tell the power industry to go ahead. So the thought was that the case would largely be resolved as a matter of statutory interpretation. Did the EPA really decide the best system of emission reduction, or did it go off on its own and pick something, uh, pick an approach for emission reduction that wasn't really authorized by the statute? in the oral arguments in the case, which drew a lot of attention, uh, much of the discussion, much of the, uh, the argumentation, the questions by the court, though didn't focus directly on the statute itself, but it focused really on the fact that what the EPA was proposing here seemed to be such a dramatic departure from what it had done before. Uh, and it was a move that uh, would have very significant economic and social effects on the country as a whole. Uh, The the shift that the EPA was promoting would involve moving many billions of dollars around. Um, It would be very hurtful to coal producers. It would be beneficial to natural gas industry, to the green energy industry. It really looked like a question involving major national energy policy. Um, And the court was a little little fearful of, of an agency like the EPA making such a big decision on its own uh, without clear authority given to it by Congress to do so. So the, the case ends up focusing on what the Supreme Court in the ruling for the first time announces as the major questions doctrine. That is, this, this case um, is a, a path case because in it, the court for the first time formulates and puts to use what it refers to as a major questions doctrine, which, which is a special rule that the court apparently is going to be using when it senses, uh, in, in exceptional cases, the court makes clear, in exceptional cases, if an agency seems to be going well outside its jurisdiction, uh, trying something new that, that really involves major policy questions uh, affecting the nation as a whole, the court is going to stop and say, has Congress really asked you to do that? Has it given you the authority to do that? Or are you really running sort of rogue on your own, taking on big issues that ought to be resolved by Congress itself? So the case then comes to focus on this so-called major questions doctrine, um, which as I say, I I think it's what what the case is going to be most known for as the, the case that originates this major questions doctrine. And as you you suggested in your introductory comments, this doctrine uh, could have wide application all across the regulatory front, uh, involving uh, regulatory agencies engaged in all sorts of activities, not not just environmental organizations. So it it turns into a decision about the major questions doctrine. I mean, I can go into more detail about it, but basically what the Supreme Court rules is that because this case involves a major policy question um, and for other reasons uh, about the case, other, other peculiar aspects of the case, the court concludes that the EPA can do what it wants to do only if it really has very clear authorization from Congress to do so. So this clear authorization rule, the court then takes that, uses it to evaluate the Clean Air Act and decides that the authorization that the EPA have has here is just not clear enough. Um, there is some statutory language that tells EPA to act, um, and they could act uh, obviously within the, la- la- uh, within the language uh, that, the, that the statute contains. But the court ultimately decides before the EPA can do something so dramatic as this, getting involved in the major policy question. Congress has to delegate that authority more clearly than it did. And since the delegation was not clear enough, uh, the court rules that the EPA regulations uh, can't stand.
1: So let me summarize what I heard you say and then you tell me if I got this right. Basically, if the court, a case comes up in which the court takes a look at whether an agency is acting beyond its delegated authority from Congress, um, they will look to see have certain red flags been raised by by the agency's action? And maybe that maybe those red flags would be it sounded like from what you said, um, that agency has never taken this kind of action before, or perhaps it has impl- in, you know broad implications for the whole in the entire country's um, economy, <laughs> in this case the energy sector. Are there other red flags that the court, you know, is, is that kind of what is that what you meant? Um, Is that how the major questions doctrine would play out with the court? And if so, um, are there other red flags that the court would be looking for? Yeah,
2: I think the red flags language is useful here, because it was a combination of those red flags that put the court on high alert. Uh, and that prompted it to want to see clear authorization from Congress. So it was the magnitude of the program, how much money was involved, how disruptive it would be economically and socially. Um, It was also the fact that the EPA uh, in this case was relying upon a statutory section that it had rarely used before uh, and that it never used in this way. So it's sort of what the court referred to as an obscure statutory provision being put to a very novel use. So that that makes the court a little more nervous about this. Um, This also happened to be an area in which the states themselves have had an important regulatory role. Public utilities are largely regulated at the state level and many states, Illinois is one, uh, is quite active in pushing industry uh, to shift to cleaner energy sources and so there was a fear by the Supreme Court that the federal EPA was sort of on its own intruding into matters that the states were also dealing with. Um, and again, that would be fine if Congress really wants them to do that, but, but without clear authorization, the court seemed to think that it, that it wasn't um, such a good idea. Another flag in this case was that what the EPA ended up doing in the Clean Power Plan was to implement policy approaches that, the, that uh, the Obama administration had proposed for Congress to adopt as a statute. So all of these, these ideas had been put forward to Congress and the uh, Obama administration was hoping that Congress would enact a statute authorizing them and Congress didn't do so. Um, now, why it didn't do so, of course, is subject to conflicting interpretations. But in fact, Congress had thought about this, decided not to do it, and then the agency turns around and does it. And that has at least the flavor of sort of going against Congress, uh, that, that this is a matter that Congress thinks is within its authority to resolve. It resolved it by, by not adopting these proposals and the agency then seems to be running around behind Congress's back and doing it on its own. Um, so that makes that makes the court nervous. I mean, that, that practice there of, of using agencies to, to implement policy that presidential administrations had hoped Congress would take on. I mean, that's been a problem, of course, that's gone on for many years with both political parties. I mean, we've got this, frankly, uh, dysfunctional Congress that often just can't address major issues. Uh, Both political parties have felt it. Both parties have decided to use executive power and agency regulatory authority to engage these issues, given, given the inability to get Congress to deal with them. Um, And I think the Supreme Court is well aware of that. Um, They understand it, but it makes them nervous. Um, And when they see an agency doing something that seems really out of line, taking on a major policy issue that ought to be something Congress deals with, uh, I guess from now on, they're going to be using this major questions doctrine and insist that the agency be able to point in its governing statute to language that authorizes this kind of
1: activity. So that last red flag about, you know, justifying the, the conclude justifying the decision based on the fact that, well, Congress had a chance to do this and they didn't. That's a particularly interesting one to me because it kind of makes the statutory interpretation relative to the current composition of Congress, the current ideological bent of Congress. I mean, because you could so the Clean Air Act was originally passed in 1970 and I think it was – There were some amendments in the – there have been various amendments throughout the decades, um, some important ones in the 90s, I think. Um, But certainly isn't it possible that the intent of Congress when it was originally – when the Clean Air Act was originally written or when the amendments were written might have been to give such broad authority to an agency even if – the Congress, as it was constituted in 2014 or 2015, would do no such thing. Like how can you how can you read into the statute based on what Congress is currently willing or not willing to do?
2: Sure. no your, your, your comments are all very sound. Um, generally speaking, what Congress today thinks uh, is not relevant when the issue in the case is what did the statute enacted in 1970 mean? Uh, You want to know what Congress in 1970 had in mind. Um, You know, that said, it's not irrelevant, though, that that, um, important policy issues have come up. They've been presented to Congress today, and Congress decides not to act on them. Now, if if it really were the case that Congress had affirmatively said, these are bad ideas, um, uh, we don't think they should be implemented, uh, that ought to carry a lot of weight. But, of course, that's not what goes on here what happens is they're just political gridlock and uh, nothing gets done. And, and I don't think anybody um, you know, who is following the scene here would think that Congress has deliberately decided that these are bad policies. It's just that for various political reasons that mostly have nothing to do with you know, climate change or uh, environmental policy generally, for various reasons, Congress is unwilling to to cooperate and get together and do something. So, but your your point is good that, um, uh, and and I don't know that the Supreme Court in in this ruling, West Virginia versus EPA, overtly makes a lot of reference to congressional inaction here, uh, except in so far as it says that these are policy issues that Congress seemed to think were within its jurisdiction. That these are matters that Congress said, yes, we should be dealing with these. Um, and by implication, Congress is is suggesting, we have not turned these questions over to an agency. Um, I mean, Congress could have said, oh, listen, that's an issue that ought to be taken up by with the EPA. We've given them authority to deal with this. They should deal with it. Don't bother us with it. Uh, no, Congress didn't say that at all. Congress said, these are big issues. We're in the business of legislating. Um, uh, This really requires legislation, and we are, for various reasons, deciding not to do anything.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between this and the Shelby County case from a couple years ago, which invalidated parts of the Voting Rights Act. And maybe this is an unfair apples to oranges Um, comparison because there, in that case, Congress had regularly (laughs) and overwhelmingly reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. And yet the court basically said like, well, like we think we've moved on. We don't think, you know, some of the racism that justified federal oversight of certain areas of the countries is still warranted, um, and so, whatever Congress is, you, despite despite the fact that Congress even recently reauthorized Voting Rights Act, we're going to invalidate it. Whereas here, we've got the court taking into consideration the fact that Congress did not want to pass.
2: No, your your, your point is well taken. There does seem to be tension there in these rulings.
1: So, and perhaps that betrays a little of my skepticism about how and whether the court is always ruling consistently on these issues. But maybe we'll come back to that in a second. I want to talk about a little more about the major questions doctrine and where um, that might take us. But I I also want to ask directly that, uh, you know, a lot of people looked at this case and said, well, the court is deciding about climate. You know, the court is making a ruling on climate. Would you say that's true? You know, was climate on, you know, was climate really what was being adjudicated here? Um, What did the court actually say about climate change and whether it's the role and responsibility of the government to tackle it? Sure,
2: sure. Yeah, so um, it's a good question to raise because uh, people might think that what was being debated was the importance of climate change and the important the urgency for action. But that, in fact, was not part of the case at all. Um, there there was no member of the court that suggested that climate change wasn't real. There was no member of the court that suggested it wasn't a serious problem uh, or that urgent action was unneeded. Um, The majority ruling, in fact, hardly mentioned that at all. Um, The dissent, there were three justices in dissent, the, the ones who were at the time referred to as the liberal justices, And they started off their opinion with some comments about climate change, but then they too pretty quickly went on to the more technical legal issues in the case. So it really was not about climate change. Um, And as I read the opinion, I don't know that the court really was thinking about environmental policy in particular, uh, that it really was focused upon this larger question of agencies going off and doing things that seem to be outside their jurisdiction, engaging in major policy decision making, legislating, in, in fact. I mean, the, the court almost goes that far and say what they're really doing is legislating. And that's the work of Congress. And Congress is not supposed to be delegating the power to enact laws to an agency, the, the non-delegation doctrine. So that's very much implicated here. They're worried also about how the federal government fits together with the states, with our federal system. They're worrying about fed agencies that are, that are running off and interfering in essentially the work of the states. Uh, and again, without adequate congressional authorization. So I, my sense reading the opinion is that the court in its mind is focused on a much broader question about how the federal government ought to be working Uh, what the constitution requires of the various branches of government, the separation of powers doctrine, our federalism system, uh, the fact that uh, Congress isn't supposed to be delegating lawmaking power. I mean, that's really what the decision is about. That's what the members of the court are focused on. And as I say, they they articulate and for the first time give a name to this major questions doctrine, which is gonna be a doctrine that is gonna be available to draw upon whenever agencies seem to be exceeding their jurisdiction substantially. Now the court, as it announced this doctrine, did repeatedly say, we expect this to be used only in exceptional cases. Um, And I think we need to to assume that they're being honest about that, that we're not gonna see it put to use very often. Um, And it is revealing, of course, to to look at the prior rulings of the court that they cite and draw together in this ruling uh, to, to give content um, to the major questions doctrine and uh, to illustrate when and how it might be used.
1: Well, so let, let's go there. I, I broadly agree with you from my reading of the decision. To me, it's less about climate. And if you're going to put a political overlay on this and kind of judge it as this conservative, as this liberal or whatever. Um, to me, it seems to be mo- much more about a broad rollback of the regulatory state, you know, like the, the, uh, the concern that just federal agencies, regulatory agencies have too much power and have exerted too much power um, and also separation of powers, like you said. So let's talk about those um, other cases that Seem to rely on the major questions doctrine. What were those cases, and what can they tell us about how broadly this doctrine may be applied, you know, well beyond the environmental right, realm? Right.
2: Um, well, as I say, the, the majority opinion does state repeatedly that this doctrine will only be used in exceptional cases. Uh, and if that proves to be true, it might well be that this is only occasionally used to prune what look like the most extreme excesses of of, uh, regulatory action. So uh, the the major ruling that the court talked about uh, was one from back in the year 2000, involved the Food and Drug Administration and whether it had the power to regulate tobacco as a drug. Um, It of course had never done that before, uh, tobacco regulation had been something that Congress had repeatedly taken on itself, mostly by putting in you know, warrant warnings on cigarette packages and the like. Um, and so the FDA suddenly wakes up and says, hey, we're going to start regulating this. And the Supreme Court says that really is just too much of a deviation from what you've done before. in um, particularly in light of the fact that Congress has been working in this area itself, Congress has never thought that it had turned uh, the control of tobacco over to the FDA. Uh, The Supreme Court says that the FDA can't do this without clear congressional authorization, which it doesn't have. Congress could authorize it to do so. The court wasn't questioning that, but it really hadn't done so. Uh, So there was a case also from 2006 uh, involving the US Attorney General, um, who at the time wanted to exercise the power to rescind the medical licenses of any physician who prescribed drugs to assist in suicide, assisted suicide drugs, uh, even in states uh, that authorize physicians to do that. Uh, this, the attorney general was gonna do this. So that the, the court reacted with great skepticism. I mean, the attorney general was not in the business of setting uh, medical policy. This is not the attorney general's expertise Um, You know, this is a matter that states had regulated for a long time. And so again, the court says, listen, this is just too much of a deviation from what the Attorney General does, his expertise. Uh, And again, the Attorney General could do this, but we want to make sure that Congress has really authorized the Attorney General to act in this way. And on the facts, the court said uh, that Congress had not done so. The court also refers to a couple more recent cases that have been sort of in the news. People may remember them more. Uh, In 2021, the Center for Disease Control uh, came out with this notion that it was going to ban landlords from evicting tenants um, while the coronavirus, uh, COVID, was rampant. And so... um, so again, the court looked with suspicion on that, and says, you know, the Center for Disease Control isn't really in the business of regulating landlord-tenant relationships. This is entirely a matter of state law, um, something where states have regulated in detail. And again, uh, there just isn't any indication that Congress had given the CDC the authority to do that. And then lastly, there was the, the more recent one, even still. Uh, the occupational safety and health administration wanted to mandate that all private workplaces require their employees to get vaccinated uh, for covid Um, and uh, that again was something that osha the the, uh, osha had never done before i mean there have always been diseases that circulated workplaces osha had never seen its job as as being to deal with that Uh, suddenly it wants to do so Um, Again, this was a a controversial issue, one that would have had grave nationwide effects to it. Um, The kind of policy issue that Congress ought to be taking on until the court says, listen, uh, we wanna see the clear authorization and it wasn't there. uh, And so um, the agency action was struck down. So it's interesting that all of these cases, um, uh, none of them involve environmental policy as such, uh, and they're sort of across the political spectrum. Uh, I mean, I think that in this, on the facts of West Virginia versus EPA, it might be sort of the more leftist liberals who, who think that this is a threat, um, but, but you know, keep in mind this attorney general's case. The attorney general wants to get involved in deciding whether states can allow physicians to prescribe drugs for assisted suicide. You know, Many many liberals there might say yes, and might, might be appalled at, at having the attorney general wanting to second guess the states on that. Um, and make the decision for them. So those were the major rulings that the court relied upon. Uh, And when you look at them, they do all seem like agencies that have stepped well beyond the boundaries of their normal work. Uh, And the Supreme Court seemed to think that the EPA had done the same thing in this case. And so this was yet another instance where they were going to sort of cut back the agency uh, and tell it that it couldn't do that without much more clear authority given to it by Congress.
1: I want to come back to the broader issue of the court and how Americans might be feeling about it, how they should be feeling about it, but let's finish up with the specifics of the EPA case here. So EPA can't tell a coal-fired power plant to basically shut down or you know transition to natural gas or uh, to renewables. But what can EPA do? You know, if if this doesn't hobble the federal government's or EPA's ability to address climate, what other options are still open for the federal government to tackle the climate crisis?
2: Sure. Well, it's important to note, of course, that that this uh, regulatory scheme only dealt with one uh, source of greenhouse gas emission. Now, coal has been a major polluter. But it is worth noting that particularly in the last decade, the burning of coal has dropped substantially. And so in terms of fossil fuel burning, coal uh, is now far below natural gas and both of those are below gasoline petroleum. Um, And this case doesn't call into question the EPA's ability to go after any of those other uh, sources. and it also doesn't doesn't call into question measures by the states uh, or by other you know interest groups that are that have been pressuring the coal industry the the coal fired power plants to cut back and they have been cutting back. Um, you know, Illinois is among the states that has been that's put tremendous pressure on the industry to curtail coal burning in the in coming years. And all of that's going to take place. Um, if, in terms of narrowly what the EPA could do at this point to go after these coal-fired power plants, um, it's worth remembering that the burning of coal does more than emit carbon dioxide. Uh, mercury is one of the byproducts of it, and that's a hazardous uh, chemical, um, and it could tighten up mercury emission standards. Uh, the coal burning is a major source for particulate matter entering the air, there's no question that the EPA can regulate particulate emissions, and it has, and it's tightened them up. And there's a lot of scientific evidence that's come out of late suggesting that particulate matter continues to be more of a problem than we thought. Uh, And so the EPA, if if it lowered permissible levels of particulate matter emissions, if it lowered levels of permissible mercury emissions, could be going after the coal-fired power plants without having to deal directly with the carbon dioxide. Um, With respect to any new coal-fired power plants, I don't know that any of them are on the horizon, but the EPA did issue regulations for any new ones that come on. uh, And they, in in effect, require new plants to embrace carbon capture and storage, which would be very expensive technology for them sufficiently expensive that it's likely to mean that no, no new power plants are, are constructed. Um, but uh, the EPA could conceivably do the same thing with respect to existing coal-fired power plants. They could come up with a regulation that says, you know, in 10 years from now, all existing plants, if they're still operating, have to embrace carbon, core, uh, storage, ca- carbon capture and storage technology. Uh, In all likelihood, that would raise costs to the points where the industry just decides to start shutting these plants down. So it's conceivable. I mean, I I must admit, though, that I'm not an expert on energy policy here. And I'll, I'll let you defer to people who know more about this. I'm just sort of looking as a lawyer at what legal means are available. And there are different approaches that the EPA could take to go directly at coal being burned in these power plants.
1: Okay, so there are still some avenues for the EPA, as well as obviously Congress, to take action on emissions and climate. Um, But there are a bunch of environmental issues that are of concern. And it's possible, it seems like, that this major questions doctrine could have implications well beyond carbon emissions. So um, can you say a little bit about where you see the court might apply this new newly articulated major questions doctrine um, for environmental policy.
2: Yeah, it it will be interesting to see uh, how the doctrine is applied in coming years and and how the doctrine evolves. Mm -hmm. It's something new. It's just a point of beginning. Um, And uh, who knows what, what it will lead to? Will it really result in? major curtailment of what agencies can do or will it really just be reserved for the very exceptional case you know, the one case that comes along every five years or something um, to, to prune an agency that's, that seems to be going off too far on its own with without authority uh, there is one case uh, very relevant to prairie rivers work that is pending before the supreme court that might be one in which this major questions doctrine is put to use Uh, And that is uh, the latest dispute to ask the Supreme Court to give meaning to the language waters of the United States in the Clean Water Act. Um, That issue has come before the court several times, leading to major rulings, but the law continues to be confused about it. Um, uh, And so there is a case pending before the Supreme Court right now Sackett versus the US EPA. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed to hear it this year. The argument will be set up for the fall, I assume, and the briefs will be filed. That actually might be a case where the major questions doctrine will be raised. Now, whether the court will wanna talk about it or not is hard to say, but I'm guessing that um, the parties that are that are pushing back against um, the regulations at issue, regulations under 404 of the Clean Water Act Uh, issued by the Army Corps of Engineers, in this case, that the parties that are pressing against the agency there, uh, at least some of the briefs will be raising the major questions doctrine. Uh, And and, uh, they will probably do so because um, the Clean Water Act, when you think about it and look at it, it does seem to be focused on water quality, on the water in waterways and on reducing pollution that's being put into waterways. But it also overtly regulates putting dredge and fill material into waterways um, as well as just sort of traditional sources of pollution. Well, the statute over the years has been applied not just to dredge and fill material in waterways or in lands adjacent to waterways, but in sort of low wetland areas that might be quite far from any river or lake. And it's that application of 404 that has drawn the most criticism. Landowners who have low wet spots in their field that they want to fill in, maybe for construction, maybe for farming, only to be told that they need a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers under the Clean Water Act to do that. Um, These so-called isolated wetlands or wetlands that are not adjacent to waterways, um, does the Clean Water Act apply to that or not? You know, for, for, for years, this the uh, Army Corps of Engineers has said it does, and they've tried to apply it, but there has been pushback all along. So anyway, this, this could be an illustration where the court says, you know, this issue of filling in wetlands is something that states have regulated. It's very controversial. An aggressive regulatory scheme could have very significant economic and social effects on the country. Uh, maybe the language of the statute isn't all that clear. You add all of those together. And so this could be a, a, an opportunity for the court to drag out the major questions doctrine and essentially to say that if Congress wants um, the Corps of Engineers to regulate putting dredge and fill material into these wetland, wet areas that are far from a river or lake, it needs to say so more directly than it has. Um, so that, that's one, one case where where we might fairly soon See the major questions, doctor put to work.
1: And let me probe that question of Congress's effectiveness and whether they, whether the authority they're giving, they're delegating to the agency, is it? You know, whether it's really that far out of bounds. Um, in my in my job with Prairie Rivers Network, I've met with a lot of members of Congress, and some are clearly very intelligent, capable people, and. There are others that, uh, you know, questionable. And, but even if we just imagine, again, let's just, we live in a, a good faith. Let's just imagine good faith on the part of members of Congress and they're all wanting to do what's best for the country. But we now live in an v- extremely complex world. And the decisions that EPA or some other agency would be making are, you know, there's just a lot of knowledge and expertise that that goes into making a decision about, for example, what is the best system for emissions reduction in a power plant, whether that's technological or otherwise? And is it reasonable to expect um, generalists, like most members of Congress are, to have the knowledge and expertise to delegate that kind of specific authority to agencies? Um, Or, you know, can Congress just kind of write a blank check and just say, hey, we're giving you wide ranging authority. Is that enough? Or are they really going to need to be specific? And if they have to be specific, is it reasonable to think that Congress is going to be able to do that?
2: Uh, Looking forward, I don't know. Whether Congress will be able to do that? Looking backwards, it's easy to say, sure, uh, it has been able to do that. You know, the best example there might well be in the Clean Air Act itself, the 1990 amendments, um, extremely long and detailed. So the 1990 amendments were mostly focused at dealing with um, those the pollution problems in parts of the country that were continuing to violate ambient air quality standards despite nearly 20 years of efforts by the states to uh, remedy those problems. Um, There were five or six six different uh, types of air pollution that were a problem. Uh, And Congress went into great detail legislating on a pollutant by pollutant basis, the best way for these non-attainment areas to bring uh, themselves into attainment with them. So one of the provisions that was of course best known Um, that was written about the most were the sulfur dioxide provisions, which included uh, an emissions trading rights scheme. Okay, so this was an example of Congress really getting into the details and setting forth an elaborate statutory system for dealing with these problems. So it has been able to do it in the past, Um, whether it will be able to do so going forward, given given its sort of current dysfunction, I don't know. There's no doubt in my mind that the majority of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court hopes the answer to that will be yes, It's done so in the past. So, you know, get in gear and get to work and, and you can do it again. But, but that said, I mean, I would have been trying to think about the EPA. EPA has issued thousands and thousands of regulations. And I honestly don't know that this uh, major questions doctrine calls any of them uh, into question. Uh, I, I was you know trying to scratch my head, are there other examples of EPA lawmaking that might be subject to attack uh, under the major questions doctrine? And there might be some, but I couldn't think of it. So it, it, at the moment, I just don't think this is a doctrine which is going to operate to check what agencies do in any noticeable way. Um, I, I take the court at its word when it says these are going to be exceptional cases where we haul them out. Uh, I think that's right. Exceptional in in, in the ways that I describe. That is, the language uh, that Congress wrote is vague. The policy issue is of very considerable importance, often controversial. Lots of money is at stake. Uh, Often it's an area where states themselves have regulated. Uh, And I don't know that it's out of line for the court to say, hey, listen, Congress, if you want the agency to do this, you you need to say so directly. And so we'll just have to see how it plays
0: out. If you're enjoying this episode, consider leaving a review on whatever platform you use and donate to Prairie Rivers Network so we can keep bringing you important conversations with experts and leaders in this field. Thanks for listening. And here's the rest.
1: You've given a fairly measured and nuanced analysis of what the court decided here in this case. And um, I think reasonably defended the court's stance. Um, I did not see much nuance or measure in the public's reception. And obviously this case came on the heels of several other cases that the left in the United States did not like, they did not like the results. Um, So I think that this is part of a larger picture. But, um, you know, the reaction breaks down along partisan lines, Uh, Republicans and conservatives cheer this as a necessary check on an overreaching government, um, in particular, weakening the the regulatory state. And the left and Democrats see this Mm -hmm. as the court doing the dirty work of polluting industries that are behind the climate crisis. And, you know, I. Some of the rhetoric gets very heated. I mean, you're talking about rogue court, creeping fascism, part of you know the move toward authoritarianism um, and away from participatory democracy. I take it from the content and tone of your remarks that you might think that's a bit alarmist. Um, like I said, you gave a very measured analysis of, of what's in this. Um, I don't know, do you think that this fear that the court is basically just a political operator that's reasoning backwards to try and get to the, you know, to try and carry out the agenda of the political party that installed it, those justices. Um, do you think that that fear is justified or is that, is that overblown? How, do you, how are you feeling about the, 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 the court at this moment?
2: Well, you know, the reactions to Supreme Court opinions, of course, come instantly. Um, pretty much everyone expressing an opinion uh, has not read, read what the court did, uh, n- n- nor would have time to do so. I mean, you know, many of these cases, when they come down, the, the opinions run to over 100 pages. Uh, who, who really has had a chance to study those and think about them, uh, and then give an opinion about the case within an hour or two? And, th- and that's what journalists seem to be called upon to do. Um, let me pick up a comment here, though, about reasoning backwards. I don't actually see that happening in this case, or frankly any of the Supreme Court cases that have been controversial. I I think the members of the Court who are labeled conservative are very much reasoning forward, meaning they have articulated uh, understandings about the Constitution, about federalism, about about, um, the separation of powers. Um, and about some related doctrines having to do with with the structure and functioning of the government. They have laid those out in prior rulings and they continue to to build upon them and come back to them. So this West Virginia versus EPA, this isn't raising policy issues that are new. I mean, not just, uh, they they have appeared not just in the prior rulings I've mentioned, but they go back quite a ways of members of the court particularly some who are considered conservative, who really worry about Congress not doing its work. Congress is supposed to be the one that passes the laws. It shouldn't be setting up agencies that have so much broad discretion that they're wrestling with big policy issues that really should be the jurisdiction of the legislative body uh, of Congress. And they're worried about, frankly, the executive branch, which is just going too far pushing Congress to one side and carrying out its agenda without really working in tandem with the Congress. And there's lots of other policy issues that that underlie these rulings. But I think all of the members of the court are, they're, first of all, very smart. Uh, All of them are very good writers. Uh, All of them are strongly committed to the rule of law. Um, And I think they're all honest in the sense that that they present their ideas uh, very clearly, as clearly as they can, as convincingly as they can in their opinions. And they build upon them o- over time. And so I, there's nothing surprising about this ruling I, I, I would say. Um, it might be disappointing, um, but it's not it's not it's not filled with after the fact justifications uh, by by members of the court who want to want to try to get rid of some regulatory action that they don't like. Um, and I think that's true pretty much across the board with the Supreme Court rulings. I mean, we don't have time to talk about too many of them, but, but uh, I think Americans would do well to read some of these opinions. And I think they might be struck uh, at how uh, carefully crafted they are um, and how respectful they are of prior rulings of the court, even on the occasional case, as in the abortion ruling, where they actually decide to set aside a prior ruling. It's only because they thought very long and very hard about it, and they have what they think are compelling reasons to take a a drastic action like that, and they admit it's a drastic action. So um, I think people are prone to look at the highly politicized process for appointing justices and to think then that that high politicization surely must carry over to the court itself. But I don't really think it does. Surely there, there are clear differences of opinion among them. But if you look at all of the cases that the court hands down over the course of the year, I mean, you don't have that left, right, right, right division in very many of them. Uh, and, and the courts have, uh, members of the court have fragmented in all sorts of different ways over the course of the year. It just happens to be that the ones that draw the most attention ended up being the 6-3 rulings. Um, but that, that, as I say, gives a misleading impression of the court generally, I think. Um, you know, what, what, what lies ahead, I really can't say, of course. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I mean, I can't really predict what's going to happen with this major questions doctrine. Um, but uh, I, I would just emphasize that the people who were appointed to the court by Donald Trump are not Donald Trump <laughs> by, a, by a long shot. Um, They are people of great integrity. I think they're honest. They have a great respect for the law. They're very concerned about the long-term health and welfare of our national government. Uh, They have particular ideas about what would be good for us in the long run, and and people can disagree about those. But I don't think anybody has to worry about uh, the integrity and honesty of the members of the court. Um, I think they're very good people. They're certainly all very smart people. Um, d- devoted to their work, um, it, it's, it's worth sort of reminding the American people that, that Congress has a very generous, the uh, Supreme Court has a very generous retirement plan, uh, and nearly all the members of the court, certainly all of those, other than those appointed recently, uh, could retire at any time at 100% pay. Uh, so these ones that stay on until they're 80 or 85 years old, uh, they've been working for years for nothing essentially, and they work very hard at it. So it it says something about their devotion to the craft. Um, now I, you have to admit, of course, that the ego is wrapped up in some of them, uh, all across the political spectrum. There, you know, there's a tendency for courts court members to think that no one could replace me. I have to stay on as long as I can. Uh, but uh, you know, that's true in a lot of settings.
1: It's been fascinating to me to watch the public reaction to all of these Supreme Court decisions. And it's particularly interesting to hear you as a renowned legal scholar and also an environmentalist yourself to provide a little counterpoint to the outrage with which this case was greeted. Um, Even if you're more or less defending a decision that isn't particularly good for our collective ability to address one of the major environmental problems of the time, I want to push back a little bit on your good faith interpretation of the court's actions here. You know, there's fairly widespread public sentiment right now, you know, valid or not, that the court is and has been for some time simply another political operator carrying out the policy agenda of the political parties, and right now the majority... And the court is pushing the agenda of the Republicans as the majority of the justices were appointed by Republican presidents. I can see how if you look at the EPA case in isolation, you might be able to fashion a very, a very reasonable defense. You could say that the ruling is tailored, it's justified, that the court reached its decision about the balance of governmental powers through a desire to do what's best for the country over a long time horizon, like you talked about. Um... But step back and take in the full scope of the court's evolution under its recent composition. Even as the court says, look, this is really up to Congress. Legislation is the job of the legislative branch and Congress needs to do its job. The context here is that Congress is dysfunctional. And even though it's the branch of government that should be the most democratic, it actually is quite undemocratic. And the court has even had a a role in making it such. the court has had a role in rolling back voting rights. Um, the court has allowed gross gerrymandering to take place in the states. And so I feel like you have to consider this supposed reassignment of power to Congress by the court within the context of the court making at least arguably anti-democratic rulings on voting rights, on state electors, on gerrymandering. and so. All of this sits in my mind as I try to analyze whether this actually is a good faith attempt by the court to invest power back in Congress, or whether this is just the court using that as cover to enact a political agenda. Can we be confident that the court's analytical tools, in this case, the major questions doctrine, that those tools will be used fairly, or should we be worried that the court is operating by reasoning backwards to reach the desired political result? So even as the court says, well, we're putting the power back with you, Congress, is what the court doing effectively a judicial veto of Congress dressed up as returning power back to Congress?
2: And so that, that's a thoughtful uh, uh, observation and, and question. Um, you know, I, I guess we'll have to see, uh, you know, the, the court emphasized, as I said, uh, that this major questions doctrine will only be hauled out and put to use in exceptional cases. So we'll, we'll see if that's true. Um,
0: you know, is,
2: is there a partisan aspect to this major questions doctrine? Uh, well, for starters, we, we might note that, um, you know, that uh, presidents of both political parties can, can use a- agencies to carry out their agendas. Uh, they have done so, and I suspect will be inclined to do so going forward. You know, it, it might well be that the next use of the major questions doctrine by the Supreme Court uh, will be uh, to halt a regulatory action that liberals very much dislike. You know, it's not hard to imagine possibilities here. I mean, keep in mind that one of the major precedents that the Supreme Court discussed uh, the case involving an Attorney General during the George Bush era, George W. Bush era, who wanted to use the department's powers. To keep states from authorizing physician-assisted suicide. You know, now that Roe versus Wade is gone, we might well see a conservative administration that wants to use federal agency of power to attack abortions in states that allow them. You know, might the FDA ban drugs that terminate pregnancy on the ground that they're unsafe? Or, you know, or could the Center for Disease Control take some similar action? Or, or the Justice Department or some other government body could interfere with state gun control efforts. Um, You know, I mean, I would keep in mind in the environmental arena that prior Republican administrations have sought hard to restrict the ability of states such as California to force car makers to improve gas mileage. So, I mean, this new major questions doctrine might well give such a state an additional tool to keep federal agencies from interfering with their plans. Um, You know, that, that said, Uh, It is typically true that that people, the leftist persuasion, liberals, are more typically inclined to push for agency action that furthers their agenda. uh, And that maybe more instances of what what the Supreme Court will view as overreaching by an agency will be on the political left than the political right. But this is a doctrine that really will apply equally on both sides. Um, And uh, so who, who knows how it will play out? Um, You know, does it have the effect of checking democracy in some way? Is it literally limiting the ability of Congress to work effectively? Uh, Again, I will just have to see uh, how exceptional these cases are. I will say when I look at the prior precedents that the court cites, they all strike me as being instances, uh, as the court describes accurately, I think, of agencies that are just going well beyond uh, the work that was given to them by Congress. Um, I mean, the, the, the CDC was not put in the business of regulating landlord-tenant relations around the country. That's sort of absurd. The attorney general was not put in charge of the standards for medical licensing for physicians. Um, I mean, so these really are odd cases involving, I think, agencies that have just gone, you know, gone way beyond what they were supposed to be doing. And, and, and notice the court doesn't say that can't be done it just repeatedly says if Congress wants an agency to do this, it needs to say so very clearly. Um, and that's a fairly neutral principle that I say that could be beneficial to people on both political side, but, but how it plays out, w- which cases the court picks as the exceptional ones to use the doctrine, you know, we, we'll just have to see. I'm at the moment inclined to think that uh, the court members are being honest and open that there's no subterfuge going on here, um, that they really are motivated by ideas of how our system of government should work, not just the Congress, you've talked about that, but also the federalism part. I mean, a lot of these voting rights ca- cases are are ones that are prompted, I think, by members of the court saying, you know, in our system, the states themselves get to decide voting rules. I mean, that's the way it always has been. And unless they really get out of hand, uh, with uh, overtly discriminatory rules as they did in the late 19th century, uh, we're gonna let the politics play out at the state level. Um, now, you know, your, your comment there in response would be yes, but so many states are just one party states that uh, the democratic system doesn't work there. And, and that's a problem. It's a real problem. It's a problem with uh, not just practically speaking, but it's a problem with the model that's contained in the minds of many court members. Um, not just that the national level is dysfunctional, is that so many states are one party states.
1: Let me go back to the reasoning backwards question real quick, just to raise a, a counter. And you don't have to respond to it, but I'll at least put it on the record. Mm-hmm. Um and I mentioned one earlier, the, the Shelby County Voting Rights Act, where it kind of set up a distinction between that, how the court looked at Congress's actual action and reaffirming the Voting Rights Act versus Congress not taking action on, on West Virginia versus EPA and how the court kind of looked at those differently. Um, but similarly, you know, there's a lot of talk about history, especially after Dobbs, right? The The, the court was kind of looking at, well, at the time that the Fourteenth Amendment was written, what was the understanding of the right? Was there a right to abortion? Was there a right to privacy? However, we're calling whatever we're calling this right. And so, you know, the court kind of looked at history at frozen in time at that point where that amendment was written, or perhaps a statute was written. Versus, let's compare that with um, Shelby County again, the Voting Rights Act, where Justice Chief Justice Roberts basically said, well, that was the 60s. And this is now, you know, (laughs) kind of underlying this opinion is the fact that we have the first black president. Um, He's he's saying that, you know what, America's different. We've changed. Yes, that was then. And this is now and we've made all this progress. Therefore, um, again, that federal oversight is no longer warranted. So just kind of a different you know, a different and now the different way that the court is analyzing or using history or thinking about history. Sure. I just want to point to some of the concerns that I've heard that just say, like, sure. I mean, these are very intelligent people, very smart people, and they can certainly build a great sounding case that this is reasonable, that this is rational, that this is based on, um Years and years of scholarship or precedent, but nevertheless, is it, you know, there's, I think there's just that question that remains, is this political, Uh, you know, so I'm guessing how you'll respond to this, but obviously there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration about the court. And um, when Biden took office, uh, he established a presidential commission to identify options for structurally reforming the Supreme Court um looking at the court's composition, either you know expanding the number of justices or maybe creating a rotating bench of um, comprised of appellate court justices um, or even reforming the nomination process to make it less political any thoughts on that do you know do you think any of that's warranted or necessary? Would it be good?
2: I think it would be very contentious um, and uh, our nation doesn't need, New, new new, sources of contention at the moment. Um, so I, I am inclined to sort of take a wait and see attitude uh, to, to see how, how cases unfold in coming years. Um, now that the abortion issue is sort of off the table, I think that that really could tone down the discussion of the Supreme Court. Because of course that was the litmus test that was used by the political right to decide whether a justice was gonna be acceptable or not. Now that that test is gone, um, I mean, I think people are gonna wonder, well, what, how should we be judging these, these justices? Um, I would emphasize also that, um, to a large extent, the problems that, that you have highlighted, uh, the, at the root of them really is not the Supreme Court, it's Congress, uh, and it's Congress's inaction. Um, in these various settings involving the Voting Rights Act, for example, Um, that could be easily fixed by Congress if Congress functioned as it should, as it did for generations. I mean, it was a question just about the interpretation of a statutory provision. If Congress doesn't like the way the Supreme Court understood it, fine, just change it. Um, But that's, of course, seems to be beyond our means to do that kind of stuff these days. Uh, And that's what makes all of this so sad and, and why issues then just sort of linger. I mean, the same issue, of course, with respect to the EPA here. If you want the EPA to to uh, adopt some new updated version of the uh, Obama Clean Power Plan. All, all Congress has to do is give the green light uh, and to allow it to go on. Um, so I don't, I don't know going forward, um, You know some of the gun rights cases, your, your, your comments here about the court's use of history got me thinking about their recent gun rights case out of New, new York because uh, Justice Thomas in that case spends a lot of time going over the history of gun regulation. Um, to to try to decide whether the regulation that New York has is that sort of in line with our tradition of regulating gun use, or is it it an aberration? Um, You know, so I don't know what controversial cases are going to be hitting the court coming up. I mean, I say the abortion issue has been put off to the side, but of course, many people are predicting a slew of cases coming back to the court if states really are very aggressive in wanting to keep uh, their citizens from getting abortions um, and, and prohibiting them from going out of state, prohibiting them, prohibiting them from getting access to uh, uh, to to drugs that could terminate a pre- pre- pregnancy. Maybe even prohibiting people within the state of even talking about it. Who who knows how aggressive they will be? Um, I, I realize our 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 discussion today isn't focused on the abortion issue, but I I'm prompted to want to say that. I really hope that in not too many years that uh, that that issue will become less divisive and it will become less divisive when people start seeing that there maybe is an intermediate position um, but between the two sides right now. I mean, when you've got an issue where Americans are very badly split on it, It seems to me as a lawmaker, the only sensible approach is to wonder, is there something in the middle that can sort of recognize the virtue on both sides? And a middle position really was not possible so long as Roe versus Wade was out there um, because that wasn't a middle position. Now that Roe versus Wade is gone, it might be that a state in Illinois could be one. Uh, A state might step forward and take uh, a more intermediate position along the lines of many Western European countries, uh, along the lines proposed by Justice Roberts himself, Chief Justice Roberts himself, in, a, in, a, in one of the opinions of the ruling that everyone ignored. But you know, that ruling was not just a straight 6-3 ruling. It really was more of a 5-1-3 ruling because um, the Chief Justice Roberts um, sort of looking over to Europe was sort of Musing out loud, hey, what if, what if in the United States we had statutes like those in many Western European countries that allowed uh, abortion up to maybe 13 or 14 weeks and then essentially prohibited thereafter? Um, I mean, if, if a state like Illinois were to do something like that, take that stance, uh, it might present that as an option in people's minds. Uh, it's not. The Texas approach versus the Roe versus Wade—that there's a middle ground here, and um, that might appeal to an awful lot of people, and that enough people so that maybe the tone of the discussion would shift a little bit. So maybe I'm—I'm I'm being too optimistic about it. <laughs> Who knows? You're—you're—a you're a little more cynical than I, but—but but you might just be more realistic.
1: Okay, we've had a very high-minded discussion about the court and where it's going and where we are as a country. I wanna bring it back to brass tacks just to to finish up um, and back to the climate and carbon emissions, carbon emission issues in particular. For environmental advocates like Prairie Rivers Network, uh, for our members, supporters of an organization like ours, where do we go from here? So it doesn't sound like this case is the end of the world. But should we be thinking about new strategies to adopt in order to make progress on the issues we care about, whether that's clean water or um, changing how the landscape looks and works to, for, for more wildlife habitat, more and better wildlife habitat, for better environmental outcomes generally, and to deal with climate change? Well, you know, what, what would be your thoughts on where we should go?
2: Well, I'm, I tend to be pragmatic about all of this. Um, there there are issues uh, in which legislative change is going to be needed. Uh, and so we've got to push for that. Uh, there are problems that agencies could deal with and haven't. And so we could push them to be more aggressive there or just b- better in their implementation of existing laws. There are areas in which private action can help bring about good environmental outcomes. Um, I mean, I think the conservation movement broadly defined has worked in all of these arenas, and I think they continue to work in all of them. I don't think, there's nothing in this recent Supreme Court ruling that would suggest that um, some different mix of efforts is called for. I just don't think that that um, this this ruling is gonna curtail the, the regulatory power of agencies very much. Um, so, you know, we, we just sort of keep doing it. Um, I would say that if we were, if we in the environmental movement were able to we have more patience, <laughs> if we were able to look better at the long run and say, listen, the problems we've got are going to be around a long time. We need a long term strategy for it. If we were better able to do that, I think that uh, we would be focusing a lot more on the cultural side of things, that our environmental problems, a lot of them stem from. Aspects of our culture that need to be reformed. I mean, as long as people sort of have a short-term attitude, don't really care about the future, it's going to be hard to get them to take climate change seriously. As long as they look out into the natural landscape and just see it as a as a warehouse of natural resources that we just harvest at will and put to use, buy and sell in the market, um, uh, we're not going to be Paying attention to the ecological interconnections and interdependencies, we're not going to be thinking about the land as a complex community of life that can be more or less healthy and is functioning. Um, I mean, there's a lot of cultural aspects to our problems, and I happen to think that that we're not going to really deal with them adequately unless we we really push for changes at the cultural level. But you know, it, it's hard to do that, uh, and it's hard to have the patience even to try it because. Cultural change like that tends to be slow in coming. And, um, and it requires coordination uh, among all of the environmental groups, really, if, if they're gonna be pushing new ideas out there in the cultural arena, it, it would work better for all of them to come together and agree upon what those ideas are, agree on the rhetoric, commit themselves to making use of that rhetoric in all of their publications and their work and their advocacy, um, for lots of reasons, it's hard to imagine groups getting together and working in tandem like that since they end up competing with one another quite a bit. But but it's also uh, you know a little hard for the, to imagine them having that kind of patience. You know, as you know, f- funders often want to give money and they want to see results in two years or three years or five years or something. And they're not going to say, oh, yes, we're happy to, strat- to, to fund a strategy that, that maybe would bring about big changes in 40 or 50 years.
1: And one that isn't tied to quantitative, measurable outcomes.
2: Indeed. <laughs> Indeed.
1: Yeah. So I, I presumably you believe a set of actors can intentionally change the culture. I mean, how do you think that's done?
2: Um, well, my thought all along, my dream for many years, has been that environmental groups would get together and pay attention to cultural issues, study them, come up with new ways of thinking and talking about the place of humans in nature, and put that to use in their rhetoric. It really would help if there were some national leaders of the environmental movement, people who would, you know, be the spokespersons for the movement. If you think back to the civil rights movement in the 60s, well, they were big names. You know, Martin Luther King was out there. Uh, and people wanted to know what he thought, he was in the news, Uh, he was a very visible figure. Uh, Today, where is the environmental movement? Could anyone name uh, an environmental leader? Uh, Is there anyone whose voice counts for anything, Uh, who is turned to to ask for comment? Uh, I think the answer is no. You know, but the only names people could come up with are people who are better known for something else. They're politicians or they were movie actors or something. Um, I mean, and I think that's a, a problem for the movement as a whole. It has no leaders who have national recognition to them. Um, and if it really were gonna work together, if it was gonna push for cultural change, it would need to have leaders like that. Uh, and, and it could have them, if the organization willing to get together and sort of decide among themselves who they're gonna put forward um, and h- highlight that person, highlight that person's rhetoric. I mean, the political right has done that, has done a v- much better job at that, of having sort of think tanks that come together with rhetoric that's then put out uh, and widely used by a variety of conservative organizations. The political left is trouble with that the environmental movement, I think, as a whole, has never been able
1: to do that. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of left issues beyond environment that do have a nationally recognizable leader. I'm not sure whether it's, you know, labor, environment, or Whatever, whatever. I'm not. I'm not. I'm struggling to come up with like identifiable individuals. Right,
2: right, right. Well, maybe maybe that's a good response. Maybe the answer is that in fact the day of having clear leaders is gone. Um, that uh, there's so many players out there, so many voices that want to be heard. That it's um, and the, the news media, of course, they're, they they need instant answers, and so somebody who's writing an article or coming up with an oral presentation, you know, there's got to be somebody you can call up right now and get an immediate response. And that's likely to be somebody who is on your, you know, your your speed dial already.
1: So for environmental advocates like Prairie Rivers Network and for members and supporters of an organization like ours, how do we respond to this? What new strategies should be adopted in order to make progress on the issues we care about I, you know, I clearly among environmentalists, there's long been a great deal of reliance on agencies to push forward environmental progress. Do we have to be more engaged in electoral politics to the extent that we can legally um, so that Congress is composed of members who take the actions that we want more state and local policy work? Um, what is it that you would recommend?
2: So, um, you know, maybe, maybe the first thing to say here is that if, if you go back 40 years, 50 years uh, in environmental policy, there used to be a very heavy reliance by environmental groups on the courts. That is, they repeatedly turned to courts, hoping that courts would help them out, uh, maybe by crafting some common law rule. Maybe by taking relatively ambiguous language in a statute and interpreting it in a way that was strongly protective of the environment, and that was true for sort of other leftist causes as well. Okay, that era has long gone. Uh, it's very hard to get a court to to uh, to be helpful in interpreting a statute. Frankly, uh, in fact, the the fear is that courts will interpret it in ways that are hostile environment to environmental protection. I um, mean it's sort of an extreme example, but if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court, they've handed down over the years nine uh, rulings dealing with the National Environmental Policy Act, and all nine of them have gone against the environmental side. So so, um, the environmental movement, which used to focus a lot on courts, has sort of backed away from that, Um, still using the courts, but not with the thought that a court is going to help them uh, craft new, new protections for the environment that don't really already appear in statutes and regulations. So um, the reality is that we have always needed legislation to deal with problems. If you look at the progress we've made in cleaning up the water and cleaning up uh, air uh, in dealing with wildlife and so on, all of them are based upon statutes, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, and if we're going to have major breakthroughs going forward, They're going to have to be based upon statutes. Think about the problems in Illinois. Um, We desperately need, uh, as you know, a new water law. That's going to require legislative action. Uh, We really need some fundamental changes in agricultural policy. Uh, That's not going to happen uh, without a legislative body getting involved. Um, I mean, we have no, no protection to speak of for wetlands in Illinois. We have no control over agricultural runoff in Illinois. And again, these are not things that Illinois agencies can do on their own. It's going to take legislative action. So sure, there is a need for us to push for legislative action. That said, I have always been of the view that environmentalists tend to focus a little too much on the short term and don't take a long-term view of things. And they particularly shy away from reform strategies that are not going to pay off in the near term, but might have some benefits in the long term. Um, And I think in the long term, uh, we really need to be focused upon changing the ways people see the nature and think about it and value it. We need to get people to talk about nature and the human role in nature in different ways. Essentially, we need to be pushing for cultural reform. Um, It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, It takes deliberate strategy. It takes conservation groups working together, coordinating their rhetoric, agreeing upon some ways of of speaking that that will then be widely shared by all the various actors. Um, Yeah, is it it time to give up on agencies? Absolutely not. Um, I don't see see that as as a reasonable interpretation at all. Uh, Federal agencies are still important. Uh, State agencies are still important. Um, you know, maybe there's a little more reason now than in the past to focus on legislative change, but an awful lot of the good that, that Prairie Rivers has accomplished over the years, as you know, has come about by successfully pressuring agencies to do their work better, um, to issue you know stronger, more protective uh, water pollution discharge permits, for example, to to, to, to improve, uh, water quality standards in Illinois and to start using them and enforcing them and so on. And it's, so that, that work is still out there. I think it needs to be done. Um, so in that regard, I don't see any of these rulings as, as calling for fundamental change in in the work of advocacy groups.
1: Last question. I know you're a voracious reader. Is there a book that you'd like to recommend
2: Well, uh, actually, one uh, very closely related to our topic of the day uh, is a book that came out recently by uh, a friend of mine, uh, former Urbana native U of I graduate Richard Lazarus, uh, who is an environmental law professor at Harvard uh, and an accomplished Supreme Court advocate himself. He's handled something like 14 cases before the Supreme Court. So he came out, I think, just last year with a book entitled The Rule of Five. Um, The subtitle is Making Climate History at the Supreme Court. Uh, And it's a fascinating behind the scenes look at the 2007 ruling of the Supreme Court in Massachusetts versus EPA. uh, The ruling in which the Supreme Court agreed that carbon dioxide was an air pollutant that the EPA could regulate. Um, a remarkably interesting story. Uh, it's, it's really a riveting, a riveting book, but it gives you very, very good insights, not into the operation of the court, what goes on behind the scenes and so on, because uh, he was able to talk to uh, an awful lot of insiders, uh, including several justices. Um, including Justice John Paul Stevens, who wrote the majority opinion. There. He went down and, uh, to Stevens, was in retirement down in Florida, and he went down to talk to him, and Stevens talked pretty freely about the case. So anyway, the rule of five, making climate history at the Supreme Court. Um, it's got a little blurb on the front cover. I have the book in front of me, a blurb on the front cover by Scott Turo. Maybe you've heard of him. He says, the gripping story of the most important environmental law case ever decided by the Supreme Court. So anyway, I would recommend it. It, It's it's a fun read. It gives you a good insight into the court um, and uh, also gives you a good sense of what what it's like. I I will say to anybody, though, who is interested in the Supreme Court and Supreme Court cases like this, if you've never done it before, go to the website of the Supreme Court, supremecourt.gov, posted there almost immediately after every oral argument is uh, the audio clip of the oral argument. And so just listen to an oral argument. I think you'll be very impressed by the quality of the work, the advocates, the role of the justices. Um, In fact, I I, I took the time to listen to the oral arguments uh, in this case, West Virginia versus EPA, and it's... um, I will say, I, I came away from it glad that I'm not a Supreme Court advocate. <laughs> they are so pounded by members of the court with tough question after tough question after tough question that it's just exhausting to think about.
1: All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Professor Eric Freifogel, thank you again for your time and for your thoughts today. Thank you.
0: A huge thank you to Professor Freifogel for his insight on recent Supreme Court rulings and all he has done for Prairie Rivers Network as a supporter and board member. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work Prairie Rivers Network does to protect water, heal land, and inspire change, you can donate and become a member at prairierivers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.